Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I'm joined today with Johanna Mellis. Joanna, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, Partly because we have the great pleasure today of speaking to Dr. Samantha White about a topic that I know people have wanted us to get into, and we absolutely have been remiss in not focusing on enough. And that topic is youth sport. And so today we're going to be getting a really a deep dive into not just youth sport, but the ways in which youth sport in the United States um, has been really profoundly racialized and gendered and trying to sort of think through, especially with a, lot, a longer kind of historical view, how the very idea of youth sport has been constructed. I just also wanted to sort of plug the podcast even more is that if you listen to the episode, or you listen to any of the other ones, and you really like it, please um, go on and uh, rate and review us. Um, leave a text review if you're, if you're feeling especially enthusiastic. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram uh, for both of those. The name is at end of sport pod. Um, send us an email at the end of sport at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you and looking forward to continuing this conversation on Twitter. So folks, enjoy. Dr. Samantha White received her PhD in childhood studies from Rutgers University Camden in 2020. She is about to begin a very exciting two-year postdoc at SUNY Plattsburgh this fall as the college's first prodigy fellow. Huge congrats on that, by the way. That is an incredible feat. Her article publications include, quote, negotiating female athletic identity and educational spaces through the works of R.R. Knudsen for the journal Ethlon. She also has a fabulous forthcoming article for the Journal of Sport History titled, quote, Ebony Jr., Meritocracy in Sports and African-American Children's Media. She also has a huge range of experience working with children in K-12 settings, as well as with college athletic laborers on civic engagement projects abroad. Samantha, we are absolutely thrilled to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we always ask this of our guests. How are you doing in the middle of the pandemic and societal upheaval in Philadelphia? Um, And, you know, it's been pretty up and down um, as far as both the pandemic and the uprising. So actually, currently right now we have a mandatory um, mask um, practice. So it started about the other day. So we're supposed to wear a mask and um, we go into stores and even outside now just because cases are rising in Philadelphia. Um, there's just been so many protests and I'm so proud of um, my community members and, and other people just getting out there and voicing their demands and their concerns um, for the city. So it's been, it's been a really kind of strange and tough time here in Philadelphia. I've been living here about for about five years. I grew up in South Jersey, so about 30 minutes away from Philly. Um, so yeah, it's it's been tough, um, but I it's also been tough across the country too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Philly's kind of been like it hasn't been quite all over the news, but it has been a real um, kind of hot spot for a lot of the protests and activity, like with the the tear gas on the interstate. Yeah. I mean, I think a ton of people saw that video. So absolutely. Um, so much of, as you probably know, uh, much of the public and media discussion of sports typically focus out, focuses on the NCAA, professional sport, and Olympic sports. 
And actually, nearly all of our discussions on the podcast have also been about these topics, too. Uh, we got questions about youth sport for our mailbag episode and struggled to answer them. So are re we are really excited to have you to be able to kind of pepper you with some of these questions. Now, why do you think that youth sports as a topic is often left out? And also, why did you choose to study children's literature and sport? And finally, what can we learn from studying the history and representation of youth sport in general? Those are all really, really great questions. Um, I think that youth sports, they tend to be left out of this conversation because there's this kind of trivialization of the lives of kids and youth. There's this assumption that youth sports, if it's recreational, competitive, it's not supposed to be taken seriously because the, the players are young. They're immature. They're playing sports at the whim of their parents. Um, and I think this is really like ageism is really central to this discussion, too. Um, and especially coming from like a childhood studies program, we're constantly thinking about ageism. Um, so it's important to view like kids and youth as as essential to these discussions of sport. I mean, I, I primarily work as a historian of uh, childhood and youth. So I'm really interested in these like histories of youth sport participation. And there's a long history of youth sport participation in the United States, um, from like little leagues to YWCAs, YMCAs. And I particularly look at YWCAs in my work. Um, and even like youth in the Olympics intersect too. Like Wilma Rudolph was 16 years old when she won bronze. Um, and you have like Sports Illustrated for Kids has been around since 1989. And so you have all of these really important histories of children and youth, but they kind of and to be, they tend to be cast to the side in scholarly, scholarly discussions, but also just like mainstream discussions and, and media discussions. It, it reminds me, there's this really great book about um, the study of children and youth in the humanities called The Children's Table. And it's a really great metaphor for people who study youth um, and how they're, they're treated. So kind of relegated to the, the kids' table because our research isn't taken seriously. And I see that in sports media and sports studies too. Uh, that, discussions of youth sport are relegated to the kids' table. Um, so I'm interested in like really bringing children and youth to the center of sports studies and even sports media, especially like these historical discussions. So what happens when we start thinking about them as future adults and think about them with, as youth with these really specific experiences that they um, bring to the sporting sphere? And for, for myself, it's I've been really interested in like kind of this personal, my personal connections. Like I played sports growing up, played club soccer, played adult league um, soccer for a while. I coached um, and I run with a, a women's run club that I did before the pandemic. So for me, like I, I had this really personal attachment um, and that kind of centers me in my work, especially as I've thought about my coaching experience with, with youth. Um, but again, like kids and youth have this long history of sports participation. And in my, in my work, I look at how these kids experience sports as spaces of enjoyment, but we also see how ideas about race and gender and class get instilled super early. And children, they do play within this really uneven sporting landscape, especially girls of color. Um, and especially as a historian of youth, I I'm interested in these like stories of exclusion um, and especially like historical studies of like individual and collective meaning making. 
Okay, well, uh, there's tons there. So I'm going to try to break <laughs> off a few kind of follow-up questions um, because, yeah, there's just a, a lot I want to get into. So the, the first thing that came to me with what you were saying, and, and I think that it would probably be helpful for our discussion in general, you pointed out one of the things that we ignore is that it's not just that youth playing sport are future adults, as you said, um, but actually, so there are actual particularities to youth sport, right? There are dimensions to youth sport that are fundamentally different. Uh, I'd love it if you could just expand a little bit on what you're thinking about there. Definitely. Yeah, because there, there is this idea to just kind of view them as, as future adults rather than just kids with their own experiences. And I think especially by looking at the institutions that they're participating in, so whether it's like elementary school or middle school or high school. And I think it's, it's still really important to treat those early experiences as fundamental too. Um, so looking at like their experiences when they're kind of younger, because uh, I think oftentimes we just tend to focus on adolescence. Like I, I do it in my own work too. Um, but there, there is something about all of these different models that come up through youth, youth sports. So whether it's these elite um, teams, whether it's AAU, um, which are very specific, like youth experiences to even looking at like parks and recs. I'm interested in how they kind of attempt to to mitigate these inequalities in youth sport too. Um, but for me, it's, it's, it's interesting looking at their specific experiences as young people and especially how their experiences as, as young people are ignored um, within the larger sporting landscape. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so you said earlier that youth sport is potentially a site of enjoyment, right? For, I mean, as we certainly would hope it is, uh, yeah. of course. And when we think about adult sport, hopefully, I mean, like this is not actually the popular kind of imaginations reading of adult sport because we, we also have this ridiculous notion that adult sport is like, like grownups get to play kids games. Therefore, athletic labor is actually not labor, it's play, mm -hmm. which is something like kind of our whole project is to unpack that and <laughs> demystify what I consider to be basically a bullshit notion there. Um, but I also, as a consequence of that line of thinking, kind of try, uh, sort of can't help but do the same sort of um, work when it comes to youth sport, right? Because although like my recollections, for instance, as a child playing sport, there was a ton of pleasure in them. There's no question about that. Um, there's also no question in my mind that there are degrees of discipline um, and, and even harm in youth sport that really fly in the face of this idea that it's a site of enjoyment. And so, I, I don't know, I, I basically I was hoping that you could meditate a little bit on that. And one of the things you brought up was AAU, right? And I think that we can think about AAU a little bit almost as like a pre-college sport type of environment, perhaps, uh, in which we see similar forms of like really instrumental rigorous training to produce um, performance outcomes that really follow almost capitalist logic. Like there may not be, I mean, I, I, frankly, I don't have a great sense of the political economy of let's say AAU sports, but certainly like it's training to advance to the next level at which point the political economy is very robust and therefore, right, it's become, it is in that sense, part of a kind of larger capitalist system. And so for me, like I see all kinds of echoes of that kind of capitalist logic and imperative mm -hmm in youth sport, even if there isn't necessarily money at stake, right, in that moment. Um, so I don't know, I just, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about 
the extent to which you see, let's say, youth sport in the United States today? We're trying to make it a little bit more specific because obviously this is like a trans-historical uh, question and question that could be geographically very diverse. But like in the U.S. today, is youth sport fun? That is a yes and no. Like it's a, it's a really tough question because I, I do see it as a, a site of enjoyment, but also a site of like exclusion and discipline to like both today and historically too. And I, I think it, it can be like, I'm, and I think that's part of why it's so important to not just analyze youth sport from like the perspective of adults, but really try to get youth voice in there too and understand how they're articulating their own experiences. Cause it's, like for me, I, I do the same thing. Like I, I'm like, oh yeah, there are times where it was really fun to be on the field. And I'm like, oh, there are times where it was awful. But I'm also kind of looking back as an adult on these experiences and understanding that these experiences have changed over time. Um, but looking at AAU or even competitive um, elite soccer and how there is a ton of rigid enforced discipline and exploitation too, um, and those aren't fun and I would hope not, but there's also spaces for enjoyment, which I think is also why it's important to kind of disaggregate like youth sport and like figure out what that that means. If and it means so many different things. It means casual play at the park to like intense competitive play. And all of these have different emotional responses. Excellent. Um, I, I wanted to very quickly just point out like, your, your point about um, how youth sport is often, often trivialized. <laughs> it's something that for some reason I'd never really thought about, but I just like that really hit home for me. Um, so, so thank you for pointing that out. Um, and so I want to sort of talk about what you've been explaining, but kind of like take us back in time a little bit to some of um, your dissertation work and your manuscript in progress. Um, where you look at the evolving ideas about African-American girls' bodies in the 20s and 30s. Um, and in your research, you talk about um, the change in discourse um, during this interwar, interwar period about um, the girls' shape and size and the role of physical activity in sports and shaping, quote unquote, the ideal body type, you know, whatever that is. Um, now we have talked a little bit about like harm, um, and and from our from today's perspective, uh, where critiques about sort of fat phobia, fat phobic language and behavior, they seem to finally sort of be gaining steam um, amongst the public. Um, and and what your research shows in the inner war period, just from this perspective, seems incredibly harmful. Um, for example, you talk about how African-American girls were tasked with answering the question, quote, "What am I worth?" based on their body type and also with guessing the weight of the girls next to them, which just seems awful. Um, so why were people thinking about the bodies and size of African-American girls in the first place during this time? Yeah, in just reading some of those manuals during that time, like they were really alarming and really concerning because there's this intense focus on like molding and shaping and disciplining the body until into this really rigid form. And this this kind of this conversation has been gaining steam. Like I'm thinking of uh, Sabrina uh, Strings work, Fearing the Black Body. Um, Absolutely. Ava, yeah. Eva Perkins's work on black women's fitness culture. But it's 
for me, I, I, it stems from, I look at like these institutional practices within health education departments at schools and um, YWCAs, and even like within the popular press. So it's, it comes from this idea that you can read the healthy body by the way it looks, not necessarily by the way it functions. Um, and that ties into like this ideal body size. Um, and in some of these manuals that where the question was asked, like, what am I worth? Like there was a, a form that girls had to fill out. Like they had to check mark if they weighed themselves or, or if they ate a certain thing. Like they were like this wow. assessment was so rigid and so ingrained. And like these, these manuals were directed at, so you had like the um, kind of general health education department, but you also had the colored branch within the YWCA. So girls were receiving like these general documents, but they were also receiving, because um, the YWCA didn't desegregate until 1946. So this is all happening in really segregated spaces. So you're also looking at these manuals written, directed towards African-American girls where they're told to photograph themselves in bathing suits and measure their bodies and exercise rigidly and do these competitive rhythmic gymnastics in order to really fit into this um, like idealized body. And I think that for like what I'm really interested in is making that category of girlhood visible. I think that really matters because of this focus on adolescence, like adolescence is a time where the body, like one adolescents just feel kind of weird about their bodies, like during that time. But also like the body is really malleable. It's, it's this object that needs to be fixed and changed. And adults are very clear about that within the language of these directives that they're given to girls. Like during adolescence, this is where you can fix what's wrong. And that implies that there's something defective about girls, which is a really harmful stereotype. Um, but it's also like my work kind of pushes back on the idea that like African-American girls have been kind of immune to bodily pressures, mm-hmm. which I think is a, is an idea that circulates even today. It's not true, but like they're, they, they have, they've been given all of these messages. And also as like scholars have pointed to, like the, the body is racialized and gendered. And especially when you have all of these Kind of figures in popular culture, like, and with Aunt Jemima, who's also been in the news recently too. But these these were stereotypes that girls were responding to, and the organizations were responding to too. Excellent, yeah. And so I guess I I guess I uh, so you mentioned like the element of race, and I guess I sort of wanted to get at like what why specifically did they care about African American girls' bodies? Like, what what role does race play in it? How did these ideas differ if they're talking about, say, white girls or African-American girls or, you know, any way you could kind of tease that out for us would be great. Definitely. So there, there, for me, there's something about the body and space and especially during the interwar period. Um, so as I've been looking through you know, the, the archive, especially in newspapers, like girls are, are moving, especially to the urban cities. And there is this there's visibility within the body, especially during the Great Migration, which is the kind of another factor which I'm looking at in my research. But the fact that girls, African American girls, are the visibility is really heightened on them, so their bodies are supposed to be essentially 
perfect. Like they're they're supposed to be respectable. There's some and as scholarship note, like respectable respectability becomes synonymous with kind of thin and slender too, because the the larger body is read as like uncivil and exercise and diet to an extent becomes a way to shape that. Um so girls become a, a symbol, like they're they're symbolic of respectability, and they're also symbolic of racial uplift, like through the sight of the the perfectly shaped body, which happens in gymnasiums, which happens um, not so much in, in outdoor spaces, but especially within this confined gymnasium, like they're expected to kind of model the the restraint, model adolescent femininity for their communities. Excellent. Um, now, in your in your manuscript, you provide us with some really fantastic evidence and and vivid imagery of the evolution of sort of the ideal body type from sort of the tomboy in the 1920s to the athletic beauty uh, for African American girls in the 1930. Um, could you explain this transition for us and sort of what the difference was between the tomboy and the athletic uh, body types? Definitely. So I was really struck by how often the tomboy came up in my research, um, especially since the tomboy is often read as as white. Um, and I, I think personally, like I just, I was kind of a tomboy growing up. So I was kind of um, interested to kind of work backwards and see how the tomboys kind of evolved over time. And I'm sorry, there's a lot of fireworks that have been happening in Philadelphia as in many cities you might <laughs> hear them in the in the backgrounds. Um, it's all good. <laughs> but it's a, a part of my research is also interested in like how girls are, especially African-American girls are expected to take up different performances of gender in athletic landscapes. So the tomboy is one. Um, and you had like directors of physical ed- education encouraging the tomboy. They they were writing, there's one who's writing an op-ed in the Chicago Defender in the early 1920s calling for parents to encourage their girls to be tomboys, which is pretty progressive now and is very progressive then too. Um, but this, at the same time, like it's it's really great to see this acceptance of a, a very gender performance. Um, but at the same time, it's also kind of regressive. Like within her call, she's connecting tomboyism, connecting this fun, but also really kind of adventurous style of of sport, Um, this rough play, this physical exertion as essential for adolescent girls to develop to be strong future mothers too. Um, So although girls are, are kind of pushed to embody this like tomboy model, it's also about producing like future mothers too, who have gain the kind of health that is important, which is, which for me is, is why adolescence is a really formative period because they have adolescent girls during this period are, are faced with all this kind of pressure, not just to develop the ideal body now, but to envision themselves as like future mothers. And that's, a, that's a really kind of tough balance for, for a teenager, but it's also viewing how, or looking at this transition the shift but it also ebbs and flows sometimes so girls are increasingly encouraged to kind of move away from 
basketball and track and field, which were embraced by um, tomboy girls in the, the 1920s. So there's really kind of hyper feminine performance that embraces beauty and quote unquote gentler sports. And these are encouraged by like governing bodies in the 1930s, um, especially in like YWCA's higher education. And there's this kind of performance of hyperfemininity and how black female figures are portrayed in sports. And it's also research has been done by um, scholars such as Amira Rose Davis. But you see physical education departments kind of in enforcing new ideals of athletic femininities. Like you see like uh, departments including beauty salons and gymnasiums. So there's a, a YWCA in here in Philadelphia that hires a hairdresser for uh, African-American girls to get their hair done after they swim. But it's also like, it's really easy to dismiss this, but it's also an, a really interesting and important conversation about hair and black girls. And this is like in 1933 and what it means to, to, occupy and move in public space for a young adolescent girl who might work out and have to traverse the city and also feel incredibly self-conscious about her body too. Okay. Well, there's, there's a ton there. Uh, and I think probably Johanna and I both have follow-up questions for you, but um, just, just to start quickly, and this is maybe a slightly broader question that kind of situates what you're talking about um, in a larger uh, historical conversation about uh race gender and sport but I, I couldn't help you know kind of thinking about the fact that you're so you're looking at the chicago defender in your example there right of the, the tomboy mm-hmm. um piece and so so that's uh, a black paper so that's targeted toward a black audience in that case um we have this idea of the, the sort of if there's the supposed evolution of, uh, or I don't know, like this teleological notion that we have that women are like brought into sport over the course of the century, but like in a Victorian era, you know, women are seen as um, belonging in a domestic space uh, and their bodies being fundamentally fragile and therefore undisposed, like, you know, not predisposed towards the athletic realm, etc. But there's also a, a really profound way in which that's a very much an idea of white womanhood right? At that time. Um, and the history for black women in the United States is, of course, profoundly different if we go back to slavery um, and beyond. And so there's a way in which like, the black woman in history, his, in the United States history, um, wasn't framed as a kind of domestic figure in precisely the same way as the white woman. And so it's just what, what that makes me think of then is... Um, is there a way in which then there's like a more direct line for the black woman as athlete? And does that kind of pass through this idea of the tomboy? That's why I see it in different ways. I think it it also depends on the institution too. So there's Howard University, which starts off as a historically black college in DC that starts off as embracing this model of tomboyism. So they're in the, the way that tomboyism is described by um, kind of the press and is, especially by these health directors is this embrace of sports such as basketball and track and field. Um, so really rigorous and in their ideas, like really competitive sports. So those like, that's how they're defining it. But then later on, there's this, new health or physical education director who comes in 
and completely kind of scraps those activities and it's in scraps into like our competitive sport. And it's because of like wanting to protect this idea of middle-class black femininity at this institution. Um, whereas at schools like Tennessee state, like you still see a, a really um, strong track program, but the co at temple still tells his girls that they, they still have to wear makeup. They still have to make sure their hair is bent. And he explicitly tell the, tells the reporters that they, they all have boyfriends, so it's fine. Like there's, there are places where that tomboy model is accessible, but it's still, it's, it's not um, available in the same way that it was necessarily at the, the early 20, 1920s. Fantastic. Um, I, I wanted to say real quickly, um, I thought your point about the the hair salons in the swimming pool, that was just like fantastic. Um, if this were like a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I would just ask you so many questions about that. Um, but I, I sort of wanted to, um, so at the beginning, you talked about how you're interested in sort of the role that African-American girls themselves can sort of shape and assert their own opinions about their bodies and things like that. And actually, this was sort of one of the questions we got on our mailbag was and more generally was, you know, how can young athletes advocate for themselves? So I'd love to hear you talk about, you know, what role did they have to achieve their own aims? Um, what did they kind of view about their bodies and ideas about sport during the interwar period? That's great. So I, I'm my work is really interested in both like these kind of messages that girls are, are receiving and the ways that they kind of pursue their, their own interests and kind of find their own way in the, the sporting landscape. So I've been really interested in kind of these stories of like girls, individual girls, like setting records in their communities. Like there was um, a, a girl named Ira Bell Thompson, and she also wrote for the Chicago Defender under a pseudonym, um, was from North Dakota and played a variety of sports, like won um, her state's championship in track and field. But it's also like kind of expanding the geographical landscape and looking at these girls in the in North Dakota who made it to national news, like made it to the Chicago Defender. And for me, like looking at how they're like, and there are, there are lots of examples that I've found in my research. So whether it's um, these individual girls, whether it's these teams, such as the Philadelphia Tribunes here in Philadelphia, where they competed across state lines um, and traveled to North Carolina. So I'm, and you also see the emergence of uh, the Tuskegee Relays during the interwar period too, which drew black girls from various parts of the country. Um, so I'm interested in the way that they articulate, and especially in the press, like their ability and their desires to achieve success, acclaim, um, and their their position as facts to enjoyment, like their position as people who find enjoyment in sport. Like even in another part of my um, continuing manuscript, there's a, a beauty queen who she won one of the first um, black beauty contests in 1940. The, and it was the largest one at the time. And she she was a pitcher for her baseball team. Like it's and she was really proud of that fact too. And the fact that she could occupy both is is a really fascinating thing for me. Um, so it's 
like looking at how these girls are articulating their experiences on in the national press is I think a, a really great way to kind of get youth voice and see how they've been or their stories do exist. I think it's especially as historians of childhood and youth, it's it's hard to find youth voice, but um it or like a lot of historians, like if if we do that necessary digging in the archive and kind of look for spots that we might not necessarily kind of expect youth voice to be. I, for me, that's been a, incredibly rewarding and incredibly important. Um, but also just to realize, like, they're also just teenage girls. Like, they, I, I come across uh, scrapbooks and they're playing sports with their friends. They play on teams. They're, they're part of this, like, a growing American youth culture, too, and growing girls' culture. Um, and sometimes it's just about socialization and tracing that as a, a, an important kind of component of, of girlhood. So when I hear you there, it, that doesn't sound like this kind of really instrumentalized model of youth sport that we were started. We sort of started this, um, mm-hmm. this episode talking about, right. Does your archival research, I don't know, indicate to you, that there maybe has been a pretty profound shift or is this just another kind of uh symptom of the the tremendous diversity of sort of sporting sites and youth sporting sites and so it's like we can't make any of these kind of blanket statements i yeah i think it's kind of tough to to make some of these blanket statements by and but it's also a question of like what kind of stories get preserved in the archive um they so I, I haven't come across a ton where girls are just being vocal about the fact that they're not necessarily enjoying it. But the the adults are. Some of the adults actually make it pretty clear that they're frustrated with the fact that girls, some girls could care less about, or in youth in general, could care less about um, sport. But for for me, it's, I think these community institutions are, are where girls are really from my research are where girls are really finding meaning. Um, so whether it's through, especially actually through, through YWCAs, which um, arise, it's actually really central to my research. So looking at them as important urban centers, um, important community centers, and an institution with a, a really robust physical education and health education department. Um, and especially these were sometimes the only places in the city where African-American girls could access sport. Um, so for example, even if they attended integrated schools, so here in Philadelphia at University of Pennsylvania, like they could attend classes with white classmates, but they weren't allowed to participate in gym class or swim with them. So they had to go to the Y. So th- these are are really kind of essential institutions um, that one speaks to the the segregation rampant in both the urban south and the urban north, um, but also form essential spaces for for community. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the community aspect because I I can I can only I know in some of my research a lot of the women talked about how important it was to have a community and, and their circumstances were, were way different they were not barred from doing things in certain places, um, and I and I also appreciate your point about um, the archival stuff and that 
and it did, I would assume that it's probably because of the fact that like children are, and their experiences are like trivialized, that maybe it can be harder sometimes to sort of find sources on them. Um, so I'd like point well taken. I thought that was uh, really excellent. Um, one thing that I uh, wanted to go back to um, that you, you had mentioned sort of the role of, um, I think it was the tomboy and how sort of the way that uh, physical education teachers, um, how do I say, how they sort of crafted this idea was a tomboy was that, you know, if, if these women had healthy, strong bodies, they could be healthy, strong mothers. And, and, and that seems to have not only reproductive, but sort of like a eugenics sort of tinge to it. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely both. So the reproductive and the eugenics tinge, and it's an, an angle that scholars who've looked at tomboyism who actually ex exclusively looked at, at white tomboys have, have brought up, but it's something that also like black physical educators were, were vocalizing within their records, within the, the press. And it, it is a, cause it is really class-based. Like they're also mainly talking to like middle-class girls in their, in their neighborhood. Um, and I think that's also an important intersection to look at this as sports not about race and class and gender and how it, it is really important to, both in the contemporary sense and the historical sense to examine those intersections. Um, but it also is, it was a focus of like physical education. It wasn't a focus of exercise, um, but it was also a conversation about like what kind of activities and that also changed about what are the best activities to to bolster the health of adolescent girls and while basketball while track that they were viewed as really and really important ways to to help folk or build that eventually it was this emphasis on quote general sports and that's the kind of the language that like the the YWCA was using, that's the language that uh, Howard University's health education department was using too. Um, so looking at like, not just kind of performances of femininity, but also like the, the kind of activities that are supposed to produce this quote unquote ideal athletic girl. Awesome. Um, well, listen, you have a fantastic forthcoming article for the journal of sports history sport history excuse me uh, I, i'm not a sport historian per se uh, i'm gonna call myself a sports sociologist so i'm allowed to make mistakes like that uh which is titled <laughs> ebony jr meritocracy and sports in african-american children's media uh, we'd love for you to walk us through it a little bit just giving us a sense of why and, and how it discusses the sort of intersection of sport and race that we've been talking about uh, and youth culture. What were some of the main aims of Ebony Jr.? Uh, how did they address those aims and why? Yeah, so, so actually, this the article started out as a blog for Sport in American History like when I was early in my grad program because um, I was interested in how these ideologies of, of race and sport get transmitted to kids and been really I wanted to center kids within studies of sport media, uh, which is something I also would love to see more of. Um, but Ebony Jr. was this, is a children's magazine and it's published in the early 1970s to early 80s. It was a, a junior version of, of Ebony. Um, it was also important because it's the, la the last black children's magazine was the Brownies book by um, Du Bois, and that was 1920 to 1921. So a large gap um, within the 
the black children's publish magazine publishing world. So it's Ebony Jr. like Ebony is not exclusively about sport, but there is a, a good amount of sport content. Um, so the the goal of the magazine itself was to um, provide African-American history, black culture, um, and that comes across in many different ways. But sport really emerges as this kind of salient theme um, is a magazine that had um, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, several or twice, OJ Simpson, Hank Aaron on the cover, as well as like young athletes, so gymnasts, um, BMX riders and swimmers. Uh, one, I am so angry that I cut this from the article, but Tiger Woods was in the magazine too. He was featured when he was seven years old. Um, Whoa, seven I- years <laughs> old. <laughs> um, but so you have um, these really kind of influential adults now, but your pictures of them where they were kids in this magazine. Um, so for me, I was, I was interested in um, examining Black children's sport media, um, these representations of, of adult athletes, and how sport is, our ideas of sport are, are communicated to, to kids. Absolutely. Um, and, and this, and the journal started in the 1970s, is that correct? Yeah. So yeah, started in the 1970s. Cool. Cool. Um, so one thing that, that kind of caught my eye, I think this is towards the end of the article. So you talk a lot about how the magazine portrays a lot of these famous athletes as models, just like you discussed. Um, but that in fact, um, children readers were not actually encouraged to like aspire to become them. Um, rather, um, you say that these people were supposed to be role models, historical actors, and sort of, as you say, manifestations of meritocracy in sports. Meanwhile, the child athlete was supposed to imagine themselves um, as being athletes of spectacular sports. And I, would, I, I just found that so interesting. So um, could you explain sort of why they did this and what this means? Yeah. So. It- one of how sports circulated within the magazine um, is so the adult athlete and the child athlete were constructed very differently. Um, so adults are curated as these these role models, um, and children are directed to view them as um, kind of models as how they can achieve success through hard work and or how those models have achieved hard work through or success through hard work and discipline. Um, and this is, I think, really kind of intentional um, because meritocracy is a, is a theme that kind of runs through the magazine. But for the child athlete, they're gymnasts and they're skiers, like they're, they're participating in these kind of spectacular Sports, and it's a term that I, I draw upon from Ebony Magaz- or Ebony Junior. The title on one of its covers, "Spectacular Sports," by kind of pulling from um, like swimming and gymnastics, and it's also about kind of crafting, coding actually certain sports as as middle class and certain sports as, as a leisure project. So, um, viewing the sports that kids participate in as not necessarily like here's where you can become professional athletes, but here's what you can do to kind of play and enjoy, which also going back to our early conversation is a, is a kind of different model of youth sports too. Um, and 
their like their photographs of kids participating in these sports. They're facilitated by their parents who send them in, um, which is how Tiger Woods ended up in the magazine at age seven. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, um, and it, that's the kind of theme that uh, I have thought quite a bit about um, because you know one of the dominant themes uh, in you know no, I mean I'm not familiar with um, Ebony Junior, but like if I mean if all we have to do is look at mainstream sports film, for instance, right, often targeted towards a younger audience as a genre, um, and that is a theme that we see persistently rehearsed, right? This idea that sport is a way to live the american dream and not only that but like very often there's a kind of um racial teleology associated with that right i.e these are often historical films and it's like the film dramatizes not just a team's ascendance against all obstacles to succeed which mimics the kind of american dream right because they drag themselves up by their bootstraps and work hard and overcome all obstacles and win right but at the same time, there's also a racial narrative to it because there's like somehow we're also overcoming a sort of segregated society in the history of American racism, which is always rendered in a very liberal way, um, eminently um, reconcilable. So, you know, th films like Glory Road, Remember the Titans, and on and on, right, are doing that kind of work. Um, and it seems like particularly noteworthy when you find that then in in any kind of media that's directed towards children, right? Because children are learning profound lessons about the nature of U.S. society when they consume those kind of publications. And so there is like, it's really apt that the word spectacular sports is used right there. Because for me, like, I view exactly what we're describing about here as a kind of spectacle, right? Like, the, it's a distraction from the sort of more fundamental political economic conditions, the conditions of white supremacy that are in fact not so easily reconcilable based on hard hard work and effort and all of those sort of things um so i don't know I, I would you say that that's sort of um i guess what i'm really saying because this is a comment more than a question i'm so sorry to say um is this is, does that resonate with your reading of this kind of material it it absolutely does and i for me the comparative aspect so i also read this against um, some of the sports content in the senior publication, Ebony. And sometimes like there are really different messages that are being given to adults versus being given to kids. So in the article, I look at um, the coverage of Hank Aaron. So it's in Ebony Jr. Kids are taught that he he worked hard and he practiced every day. And if you practice every day, you're going to be, you, you can achieve not his exact level, but you can get close. And that like that kind of coverage is really different than what he's allowed, he's said, or he says in Ebony, where he he's portrayed as kind of cynical. And he's also very vocal about the the segregation he experienced as a kid. And that isn't like it's not even hinted at in Ebony Jr. And I was struck by how so much of that is erased. And some of it is because um, this desire to kind of protect childhood. Um, and it, I mean, it's both a, a noble intent, but also it's kind of dis not destructive, but it, it, doesn't, it does a disservice to child readers to kind of ignore some of the really 
salient issues. Um, but that that comparative angle, because it, it sport is portrayed as as a meritocracy within these pages, and um, I've been intrigued by how different that is within adult publication. And I think it's a really interesting conversation to kind of examine and interrogate, like how we talk to children about race, which is a conversation that is happening now too. Um, but how this kind of approach to erase some of these conversations is detrimental. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought up the comparison that you did between the two magazines, because I think you just I do that. You do that so well in the article. So I'm ple really pleased that you brought it up. Um, and I guess I, I guess I want to ask you a little bit more about this and that. Um, so so the, the magazine kind of portrays this idea that like sport is a meritocracy and that um, it's a tool for racial uplift. Uh, for, for black ch uh, children leaders, you know, sort of how did this compare to what um, the conversations were about sport and race and American society at that time? Mm -hmm. um, so some of the, and that's why like most of the work that I, I pull from um, does include like the, I mainly focus on the article in the 1970s and or the magazine during the 1970s so a lot of this is revolving around um the larger conversations and that's kind of what pulled me to the kind of the magazine and the content in the first place is looking at the figure of the athlete the black athlete especially the black athlete as activist and i i was hoping to actually find that at ebony jr and i didn't um so that i was really intrigued by kind of that erasure in ebony jr um and the fact that these kind of messages and these ideals aren't being translated to to kids and to young people um, who are who are reading this magazine, and so they're taught that hard work is essential, and they're taught that merit is essential, and they're taught taught that um, aspiring to to certain sports is essential, um, and viewing children as the recipients of mess of these kind of messages also shows how they. That's what they've been kind of left out of some of these conversations around like race and um, sports, uh, especially during the 1970s. Yeah, yeah I, I, uh, oh, go, for, go for it, Nathan. Well, so I'm sorry. I just I found that really disturbing, actually, as you were, as you were laying that out, because we often have this idea, right? Like the, the, or the, the debate about what, whether the athlete is or should be a role model, et cetera. And what you kind of are describing there is there's absolutely fundamentally, because I mean, everything is modeling in that sense, right? Children are socialized and they're just absorbing an, under, like a, a, an understanding of the world, right? They're trying to figure out um, what to make of everything around them. And um, so if they're consuming material about sport, they're going to be learning about how to understand sport and, and how, in part, how adults want them to understand sport. And so if the message is there, our messages about meritocracy, right? Clearly, it's like it just goes hand in hand with the kind of disciplinary education system and everything else that is sort of turning them into the appropriate subjects of the system, especially racialized subjects in the context of U.S. society. Um, and then it's like it's just so tragic that there are actually these other alternatives in precisely this moment, right? In the 1960s, we saw these just incredible examples of athlete activism. This wasn't the 1990s, right? This wasn't Michael Jordan and Republicans wear sneakers too and all that stuff. This was a moment where there really was incredible po possibility to see an alternative 
version, I guess, of U.S. history and what is possible. And it's just erased. That seems so tragic. It does. And it's, I think it's also just one is kind of like looking at the function of, of the magazine and kind of the, the fear of what you can, can give to kids, like what kind of content is re- like read as appropriate for kids. Um, and unfortunately this comes forth in Ebony Jr. Like there, there are these, these role, there's an emphasis on role models versus like the, like critiquing, um, uh, this meritocracy and it, it, it does trouble me because I think this is a really important way to, um, kind of present sports to kids, but it's the, the magazine unfortunately had a really limited scope, um, or limited span. It only lasted until about 1982. So for, I, I, sometimes I imagine like what, I mean, you can't really speculate too much, but what could have happened if the the magazine could have expanded um, and what kind of stories could have been told um, if it had been allowed to to go on a little bit longer. But it it's this idea of like how, again, how adults are, are, are crafted in the magazine. Um, and yeah, that, that idea of merit is something that, that kids are, are supposed to are directed to, to really hold on to. You know what? And it, it just occurs to me as you're saying that those kids who are consuming that publication, right, in the 70s, you know, those are the generations that are this sort of like black hole of athlete activism in a certain sense, right? Like the, mm. we, we have a huge gap in exactly that historical moment. So if we're, t- I mean, obviously these are huge what if questions and it's much more complicated, but like there is this way in which if a different, different kind of intervention could have been made in that moment, what what might the impact of that have been and and it's sort of what you're what you're saying is terrific like there's this assumption that children can only handle a certain type of content right but it's amazing how that content also um directly correlates with sort of like the demands again of like the larger system which wants them to be pliant subjects of capitalism and a system of racist racial capitalism um but so like they can learn any imaginable kind of lesson that will serve that particular end. But if the lesson is, you know, about, I mean, like, it's like if we actually try to pull these so-called lessons apart, like we're literally just trying to teach someone that it's possible to actually prioritize justice, right? Ethics, equity, like that's so easy for a child to understand. I have a four-year-old child, like she easily gets those questions right like if we we point to a certain situation like was that like does that seem okay to you she's like no of course it doesn't seem okay that's terrible and here's exactly why right and effortlessly effortlessly explains why because it's so readily understandable for them and we see that in our moment right now it is specifically young people who are in a large sense leading um, the uprisings, uprisings against climate change uprisings against white supremacy like young people can do that work very young people Children can do that work because children understand ethical questions and are not seduced in the same way by capital and power and everything else. So ugh, ugh, that's all I have to say. <laughs> and just seeing like there some of the narrative, like there's this, um, a dramatized play about Jackie Robinson who's in Ebony Jr. too. And um, there's a kind of a white racist fan who spews all sorts of like 
white supremacist logic. But by the end of the story in Ebony Jr., he's redeemed after seeing Jackie Robinson play. And for me, like that's also a really problematic arc to put in a the children's magazine. Because there, there are so many ways that you can um, talk about Jackie Robinson. There's so many ways that you can portray him, but kind of viewing his sporting performance as a way to kind of um, kind of just transform uh, white racists. Like that for me, like that's a, a failure of the magazine. And there's so many things that the magazine does right um, in terms of like children in sport, especially by um, like providing these, these images of, of um, child athletes, especially young black female athletes. Like those are, those are really important cultural images, but at the same time, like the, the ways that the magazine also kind of upholds merit in the face of um, like really problematic depictions, like it's, it's a really complicated and complex um, publication. I'm I'm so glad that you sort of continue to nuance it with that answer. I, I just think I, I it's hard when like being asked the question, like, you know, is a publication good or bad? And it's like, nah, it's somewhere in the middle, but I think you did a really good job of explaining how like the images themselves and like creating, you know, portraying role models to readers, right? Like we can't really underestimate like how important that is. But then again, it's like sort of breaking down the message that's being portrayed and sort of how children might be consuming that and sort of understanding the world around them. Um, so um, to switch tracks like a little bit, so uh, one of your first publications was about R.R. Knudsen's feminist sport writings in the 1970s. And I have to say, I had never heard of her, but now I like, I want to read all these books just because I'm like super interested in them. Um, and um, I just sort of was wondering if you could give an o- overview about like what were her books about, sort of what made them groundbreaking. And I'm, I'm sort of also curious. So this was one of your first publications, if I understand that correctly. And so I was kind of wondering if you could do a little comparison between her writings compared to what Ebony Jr. was writing about when it came to sports and like the role of race. And you can kind of take that in whatever direction because that's like five different questions, I think. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it was um, it's one of my like really early publications and it's, um, something that I've kind of wanted to come back to. So it's, um, R. Nudson wrote this series, this trilogy for a young, a young adult. She was, she was a, a queer poet who also wrote young adult literature. Um, and this series is the first one's post, uh, published in 1972, um, and then throughout the 1970s. And at the heart of it is about a young high school girl who plays a variety of sports, basketball to football and cross country. But I think essentially like what is really poignant and really meaningful within these texts is the way that she as a character, Zan, um, critiques and uh, critiques the schools that she attends for not upholding Title IX. Um, and this comes in some of the later series. So the, the books are kind of titled a little bit silly. So it's Zan Baller, Zan Banger, Zan Boomer, like really kind of fun, but silly titles. Um, and I, I'm really struck by how she is a, a character with agency. So she's advocating for herself. She's advocating for other young um, female players um, at her school, but also like including the language of Title IX in one of the books, like including some of these um court rulings too and for 
the the time like I these are a response. Um, I read them as a and I as a response to um, Title IX, some of the institutional failures uh, which still exist today. Um, but it's also groundbreaking because of a lack of feminist-driven um, sports young adult literature that really makes like girls the center of the, st- the story. Um, oftentimes, the, the romantic relationship kind of is central to the plot. Um, but it's also kind of connecting it to Ebony Jr. Like, what does it mean to see yourself in sports writing? What does it mean to see yourself in in sports media? And there is a when we're thinking about childhood, when we're thinking about youth, like thinking about being able to kind of read texts that center your experience and tend your experience in, in meaningful ways. Like that's what drew me to that trilogy. And that's also what I, I've been kind of firmly in the 1920s, 1930s and, and for a while and will be for um, a good amount of time. But I'm still really interested in how like children and youth um, especially youth of color, especially girls, are really kind of erased from square media, square literature, um, and where where stories that mirror their experience could be found. Awesome. Well, let's 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 bring it now, um, because as I said, I'm I'm less the historian here, and I appreciate like I I learn from you, uh, but I also always want to come back to the present moment uh, if I can, and and try to to think through now how all of this is playing out in front of us, basically, you know, um, and we are in this incredibly unprecedented moment. I mean, if for whatever, it feels unprecedented. Histor- I, I shouldn't say that to historians. So that's a, my first mistake is to call it unprecedented. But <laughs> um, whatever, it's a, it's a pretty significant moment. Um, and a lot is, you know, if there's so much to unpack, basically, right? It's impossible. It actually feels like every single day, there are, you know, if you were just to like glued, even just spent your life glued to Twitter, there'd be so much to try to puzzle through every day. So it's really hard to kind of figure out what to make of um, even just something so kind of micro as sport and the pandemic and, and also the the uprisings against white supremacy. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say then is given your work, your research, your sort of understanding, your, your complex understanding of um, how youth sport has been represented and constructed along lines of race and gender, what do you make of what's playing out in front of us? It's hard because I, as a as a historian, it's so you know, easy just to to stay in the time period you're working with. But there are all of these kind of parallels and just ways to really think about what it means to um, exist during a, a pandemic and also in the the midst of um, all these protests and the uprising. But um, for me, I've because I, I often kind of reckon with with health um, and like health education departments and seeing how physical education is connected, but how they were often concerned with like this appearance of the healthy self for youth, um, and we're also seeing how that thinking is kind of de- is especially dangerous with these um, with COVID and especially looking at like asymptomatic transition or transmissions, um, but also seeing how kind of young like these young student athletes like. And I, I've been reading about, like, especially at the high school level, who've been contracting 
um, and exhibiting COVID symptoms, like both before and after practice, it's like just seeing how these institutions are viewing and it's not new, but have been viewing their bodies as disposable, have been viewing their labor as disposable. Um, but also seeing this, the like the youth activism that is also coming out of um, not both the kind of calls for change within white supremacist um, institutions, but also looking at the um, kind of long history of student activism too. Um, but also seeing how they, they're able to advocate, like some of these students, they can, or some of the ways that they can kind of advocate for themselves is, you know, refusing to play. And we've seen that um, across several different schools, holding administration accountable, making known the public health risks, like, but also there's like the Aspen Institute has, they've all also been making these kind of important observations about youth sports, like, look, which I've been kind of dwelling on, but looking at the economic impact that COVID will have on youth sports, especially since there's such a disparity. Um, so if, I mean, they're also like families can't pay, couldn't pay for youth sports before because of exorbitant fees, like they, they certainly can't now because of the economic impacts of COVID. Um, so it's, there, there are all these things I've been, I've been thinking through within the, the youth sport landscape within COVID, um, within activism, um, and really kind of thinking about bodies and, um, like who is viewed as healthy, who's viewed as disposable and, um, kind of the impact it has for, for youth sports. So I, I wanted to sort of follow up with that. Um, and so this is a question that we got in the mailbag was sort of how can how can young athletes, like what can they do in this moment? Like how can they advocate for themselves? Um, and so like, I think high schoolers, cause they're, you know, they're hearing and they're learning about what athletes are doing at the college level, or like, I assume may, maybe it's disconnected, but kind of like with younger athletes, what do you think they can do or what do you think parents or even coaches should be doing right now? So for, for younger athletes, I, I still think that they can refuse to play. Like I, I think that they can collectively organize and, and they have been organizing. They have been demonstrating activism. Even I here at, at Rutgers Cam, there are, um, or really close to Camden High, and students, some of the the football players, um, kneeled for the anthem, and that like this was a couple of years ago. But there, like, there are instances of high school students participating in activism, like collectively organizing um, and finding ways to can petition their their administration too. And this is is really important for them to do on their own to exist. Kind of showcase their own youth voice, but it's also important for for coaches to to support them and model that kind of behavior too. Well, speaking about coaching, um, you have had experience, if I understand correctly, as a coach, um, and I, I'm really this is something I, I find endlessly fascinating because as someone who you know is deeply critical of sport in myriad ways. Uh, the coach is a pretty difficult position to occupy in my mind because, you know, there, if I, if we view the athlete as someone who within these larger structural contexts is often subjected to harm by the kind of model of 
elite sport, whether it's youth or beyond. Not all again, it doesn't have to be the way. I'm not I'm not saying I'm not making an absolute statement, but within the context we're talking about, that is the way in which sport is typically played. So that, that becomes the job of the coach, right? It is to maximize performance, right? It becomes this kind of production imperative. We gotta win, we gotta maximize performance. And so your job is to get the most out of your athletes, but it's not the most fun or pleasure or whatever else. It's the most performance. And so it the reason it's endlessly fascinating to me is I then wonder. For a person who has a very critical disposition towards sport and a much broader understanding of society in that sense, how do you play the part of coach? Like, what do you do when you're in that role? How do you navigate it? It's, it's hard because I, I, I'm an intensely critical sport, but I, um, and I, so I coached a couple years of youth soccer, um, but it was, it was club, so I coached ten and eleven year olds, um, and it it is a really difficult position to occupy. Um, like figuring out how you, and I think it also depends on like what kind of level you're coaching at too. I think for for me, it was a not even a bit, but a lot easier to uh, have conversations with with parents, have conversations with. Um, even kind of the the larger administrative staff of the the program because we we were like a casual rec program, um, but this is really different. We're talking about like these elite programs, and it's something that I'm I'm actually not sure I have an an answer for yet. Like it's something that I've I've been considering like as as a as a coach, as someone who's who's worked with um, intercollegiate athletes, like how how do you model it one and two like how do the structures that you're part of allow you to model that absolutely and it's funny when you're talking i'm we are very much of the same mind and that this is something like having coached um for a long time and, and actually very similar ages i coached like ages five to eleven was kind of like my sweet spot um how do I say I'm, I'm kind of mixed about it. I mean, I have certain ideas about like how I approached it, but it's, it's endlessly challenging. Um, so I, I really appreciate your answer there. Um, so I think kind of the last thing we'd like to ask you is, um, you know, is there anything else that you'd like to share that maybe we didn't ask about your research or about your teaching, or I know you've done, had done a lot of work working with student athletes and sort of K through 12, um, athletes. So, you know, if, if you have anything else that you want to say, we would love to hear it. Let's see. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to how to sum it up. I've 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 been really actually lucky to to coach and to work with uh, college athletes, and it is why I I am so critical. I think because I I expect I want I want better for like the the young people that I've I've worked with and the young people I've coached, and also they they've i've been lucky to hear their own experiences and know that like children and youth are are able to kind of voice their own demands we see it like as in activism today but they're able to voice their own demands they're able to call for social change and back to kind of the beginning of our our conversation is the as we continue to or as other people continue to trivialize the experiences of children and youth, like we lose so much by not including their own experiences um, ac across so many different spheres. Um, and 
like coming out of a childhood studies program, like and, and still working as a historian of childhood and youth, and just as a person who like works with young people, like I, I really would like to see other practitioners, other scholars, other sports media folks, like really start to center the the voices and experiences of children and youth. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I, I, Go I got I to ask something. You, you know, you know me, Joanne. I have to ask something about college <laughs> sports. Now that we're talking about college sports, I, I have to ask something. Um, so, yes, we are seeing so much. Like we're just seeing this incredible burgeoning moment of college athlete resistance, and there is literally nothing in the world of sport I want to see more, basically, than that. Um, and I'm following it pretty closely as a consequence. But one thing that, so let me just say, from that standpoint, this isn't a but kind of proposition. Actually, like I'm just delighted with athlete, what, what, with what the risks that athletes are taking, the way that they're seizing power in this moment, and I think that we're going to continue to see that grow and grow. And there's nothing, like there's literally not one way in which we could kind of hope to transform college sport, but one avenue to transforming college sport more profound or productive than seeing athletes seize power for themselves. So that's that's it. That's that's one point for me. But then there's this other point, because we are all three of us, we're all people on campuses, right? Um, and one thing that we do not see enough of is a- academics, faculty members of all mm-hmm. sorts aligning with college athletes, right? Treating this as an issue of solidarity uh, and a responsibility that we share for people who are often looked at as the most privileged members of a campus community but actually I think are subjected to some of the most harmful conditions and really put in a position where they have incredible, like their agency is constantly diminished. I'm not saying they have no agency, but rather they're just put in incredibly coercive situations constantly that make it difficult to exercise agency uh, because of the structural dynamics that they're faced with, which is why the moment we're seeing play out in front of us is so incredible because it takes incredible courage to push back against that. Um, so given your own experiences, I'm just curious if you have sort of reflections on that. Yeah, it's, I mean, I would, I would like to see, and I mean, like, I really, I, I think it's a need to see, like you said, academics really aligning um, with collegiate athletes. And I, I'm not exactly like, I'm, I'm, I would like to envision and kind of collectively like think through like what kind of like how did what does that look like like how what does that look like to bring um to to think through these things together because there there's a hesitation um or there could be a hesitation on part of academics but also like i can also see how like there is there might be a distrust to like why like why should some of these students trust academics. Like, and I say this as an academic, like I, I can understand kind of like the blockages that students might have to and kind of trusting us to, to advocate for their labor. Um, and I'm like talking about the university structure itself, but also like academics. Um, so I'm not, I'm not exactly sure if I have a, an answer yet, but just trying to think, think through like what, what it could look like. That, that's such a great point. Uh, I, I, 
Yeah, I love how you put that because I was making an assumption with what I was saying that like solidarity is even possible or under current conditions. Like I, I believe that solidarity is possible, um, but that doesn't make it easy. And I, I think I was possibly skipping a step because one thing we know about the dynamics uh, on our campuses, if we're paying close attention, is actually that, you know, I was bemoaning the fact that we don't we don't see enough academics acting in solidarity with college athletes. And that's definitely true. But what we actually do see a lot of is academics treating athletes like they are the problem, yeah. right? And so, I mean, that, that to me, that gives because every reason for the answer provided. Like, why would a person, a college athlete, feel any trust to a kind of class of individual on campus who typically treats them disrespectfully, mistrustfully, assumes, I mean, again, I've heard this uh, from administrators at my own institution trying to teach us how to engage with college athletes. Well, the problem is lack of engagement from the athletes. That's the framing. But the athletes, so it's always the athletes are at fault, right? A totally neoliberal logic and just a disgusting logic when you think of what these individuals have to go through. Um, and the idea that, uh, I, I don't know, sorry, I'm just, this is a bit of a digression, but like I've just, I was just watching the film Athlete A, uh, which I recommend people check out um, with a huge content warning because it's very painful in terms of discussion of sexual violence. Um, but, you know, one thing we he we hear about in the context of USA Gymnastics there is this like fundamental gaslighting basically of the athletes right they were constantly told that they were lazy not trying hard enough you know wouldn't play through the pain just constantly to the point that they like lost the sense of themselves and like the ability to trust their own instincts and I mean we we see those exact same kind of dynamics the people who are working forty hours on a football field for instance and have to go to class and then they're told that they're not engaging enough. Right. Or they're, they're condemned for falling asleep sometimes in class. Um, how could those individuals then turn around and trust the very people that are acting towards them in that way? It's a great point that, that there's huge work to be done there. Yeah, a lot, a lot of work to be done. Um, just trying to figure out how how it's possible. It's, ne it's necessary work, but a lot to be done. Absolutely. So. Dr. Samantha White, thank you so very, very much for giving up your time. This was such an incredible conversation. I mean, we could just continue like asking you questions about your research and your experiences and sort of your ideas about how to support, just to give so much support to student athletes right now, uh, ones that are like really feel like they're able to express those voices and ones who are figuring out how to do that, right? Because there are definitely student athletes out there who probably don't feel comfortable doing that and, and are still figuring out, you know, how, how they should do it in a safe way. Um, so thank you so much. And um, congrats again on, on uh, graduating. And of course, you're very exciting to your position. And we are so excited to sort of see how your career continues. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of The End of Sport. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.